Hey, this is Graham, and this is episode 11 of Positive Feedback. Share it with your friends. Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between, with your host, Graham Redfern. So there are a few ways we can get a handle on the big picture of climate change. We can look at global temperatures, that might be one, or the temperatures of the oceans, maybe the state of the ice caps. But one of the fundamentals is this. How much carbon dioxide are humans pumping out, and is that number going up or down? Now, among a few climate watchers, there's been a bit of creeping optimism in the last few years. One reason for that is that global emissions of carbon dioxide have been pretty much flat since about 2014 at about 36 billion tonnes. That's still a record number, mind you. But those emissions stayed flat while the world's economy kept growing. How did that happen? Later in this episode, we'll ask Professor Frank Giotto about that. But first, an international consortium called the Global Carbon Project have just released their annual count on global emissions for 2017. Dr. Pep Cannadel is a Principal Senior Scientist at Australia's CSIRO Science Agency, but he's also the Executive Director of the Global Carbon Project that's just released that report. I asked Pep, are this year's numbers good news or bad news? There are bad news. Uh, there are bad news in the sense that we just come from three years where global fossil fuel emissions uh, didn't grow at all. At the same time, the global economy continue to grow really strongly at a GDP gross domestic product of you know 2.5%, which is a very healthy uh, you know, growth of the global economy. So what we see in 2017 is that we're projecting that global fossil fuel emissions will actually res- ram- resumption uh, um, emissions growth, something that in a way we, we didn't quite want to, su- to see this thing again and we wanted to kind of call that plateau that we saw the last three years as the global peak emissions, which uh, it won't be. Yeah. So we're looking at, uh, I believe the number is somewhere around 36.8 uh, billion tons or gigatons of CO2 in 2017. Um, that is a, that's a record level of emissions, is it, is it Pep? Yeah. So basically we come from this plateau in 2016, uh, with about 36.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide, uh, which is moving into almost you know 30, uh, 37 billion tons, and that is an absolute all-time uh, new record for uh, fossil fuel emissions and industry. Uh, and we count in industry uh, all the production of uh, CO2 from uh, cement. Uh, this is interesting. Of um, so I, I know that the cement is counted. So what in where does the CO2 emission come from in, in, the, in the cement making process? How, how, does, um, how come cement is responsible for quite a, high, quite, a, quite a large amount of emissions? Yeah, so it's, it's still about, uh, about around 4% of what's included in this section of the emissions, which we call fossil fuel and, and industry. So it is not insignificant. It's actually in absolute values. It's quite, quite good. And that's when the, the, the lime gets really uh, put at, at, uh, at very high temperatures uh, to be able to uh, produce um, the cement that uh, reacts and delivers uh, 
carbon dioxide mm. into the atmosphere. So it's really the process of of heating, you know, the the the, the fundamental, you know, limestone that initially goes into the into the furnaces. Sure. So with the project, then with the global carbon project, we're counting all the all the fossil fuel emissions, industrial emissions, and some of which obviously is is cement production. Now we're seeing this rise this year to record levels. We had a three year plateau. So what what what's where, where is that rise this year coming from? So the single most important contributor to the rise is is China. China's emissions we have been. Uh, kind of flat or going down over these last three years are going to grow by the end of this year about 3.5%. That's a very significant growth. We didn't expect that. Of course, we didn't expect the the peak emissions of China 40 years ago uh, either. Mm. So it's all a little uncertain as, you know, China kind of plays an important role and some of the the, the reasons are not fully understood, although we understand very well that there was an increase on energy demand, particularly in the industry sector in China. And for instance, uh, industry like steel, you know, required a lot of new new energy during 2017. And that really pushed the use of coal once mm. again up, which increased about about 3% in China. I understand too that you're seeing some rises in, um, in in just the use of oil, specifically in specifically Pep in the in the Asia Pacific region. Is that right? I mean, it kind of we we talk we talk a lot about renewable energy. We talk a lot about coal, um, uh, but we, we forget that kind of the, um, the you know the old the old staple fossil fuel oil is is still being uh, used at, at, at extremely high rates, and this continues, does it? Yes, and actually, it's something that we just don't talk enough about it. So if you look at the trends of um, oil or, let's say, CO2 emissions coming from oil consumption for the last 30 years, those trends have not changed much. It's, It's a trend of constant increase, very kind of stable, relentless increase. Also, as well, natural gas. So in a way, you have this 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 kind of war between trying to get coal emissions down and actually we've been successful at doing so over the last four years Mm. with what has been a fundamental quite relentless increase both in asia but in the rest of the world that includes actually europe and us and in this country where oil and gas has continued to increase so what's what's the human behavior that drives that is it is it basically just cars well, that's interesting because yes, uh, of course, cars mobility—it's—it's uh, it's a very important one. We uh, the, the the fleet of cars is is continue to to grow uh, nonstop. Uh, we have the the beginning of what can be and we hope to be uh, an important electrification of the mobility, but that's so small that it's basically not doing anything yet to the global emissions. Mm. And what we also see very importantly is that all the sectors which are not mobility, that use oil, actually growing even faster than mobility. Mm. That is, sectors like um, you know, plastics or paints or solvents or all these, these all things which are associated to the re- refinery of oil, uh, we, we see this growth strong and to continue to be strong over the coming decades, even when electrification will uh, start making a difference to the mobility component. 
So we've had this, we've, we had a, like a plateau for three years. Now we, we find 2017 will be at record levels again. Um, and also you, you, you think the Global Carbon uh, Project thinks that, that 2018 is, you're likely to see further growth. Is that right? Well, it, so so in 2017, the, 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 prediction, the projection for GDP gross domestic product globally it's about 3.7%, which is a really strong uh, growth of the economy compared to um, more modest growth, uh, you know, within the 2% growth that we've seen in the past few years. Now, 2018 is going to be even farther, the, the projection from uh, th- that we have now, it's even bigger, about 3.8%. So every time that the economy, you know, kind of push up, you know, its growth, mm. You know, there's an immediate requirement for energy, and of course, this energy demand has to be, you know, uh, fulfilled immediately. And you know, whatever is available there, either, and of course, there's a lot of fossil fuel available. You know, is likely to meet some of that extra demand for for the, this new growth. Yeah, sure. We we we've heard um, over the years this idea that, um, well, not an idea that that that. that we haven't yet managed to decouple is the phrase, isn't it? We haven't decoupled economic growth uh, as you might define it in in terms of GDP. We haven't decoupled that from uh, emissions intensity and a rising use of oil and gas and coal. Um, And there was some commentary a few years ago thinking, oh, maybe this is beginning to happen. Um, uh, But if it is, it certainly seems like a very bumpy and noisy ride at the moment. Yeah, so so it's something that's really important to actually understand. You know, the the, the, the global economy is always becoming improving its its um, and, uh, carbon intensity, so that we, it, it's always decoupling. If I were to kind of show what has happened over the last one hundred years, I would be able to show that we've been decoupling for the last one hundred years. We are always able to to produce uh, more wealth with less. Uh, carbon emissions. And that's because we become more efficient at doing it or because we move the the economy to produce wealth in the service sector as opposed Mm. to on the manufacturing sector. Now, what we're calling now for, it's this measure acceleration of this decoupling of the global economy from, you know, emissions, which we saw a little over the last few years as, again, you know, coal emissions fell really quickly at the same time the global economy continued to go up but again that's now being challenged again in 2017 yeah now the the global carbon project you've been doing these these annual um these these annual reports for a while now T- tell me tell me a bit about the, the the history of the project when when did it start and 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 give us an idea of the scale of the of of this process this this collection process to come to this this huge global figure so the Global Carbon Project was established in, you know, in early 2000, and it was really kind of established to, uh, by the major global environmental programs, uh, you know, saying that, you know, there's all these people talking about the carbon cycle, and everyone has a different opinion. We really need to bring this thing all together and do an integration that, you know, help us to understand and make sense. And so, uh, you know, the, the group was established. It's really important to understand that this is a group that it's, it's – has developed this cons- global consortium, which now specifically just for the global carbon budget 
activity mm-hmm. has about 57 research organizations across 15 countries. And it's all done from literally a, a coordination, volunteer, um, you know, uh, fashion mm-hmm. in a way that those now about 80 scientists involved uh, you know, really want this thing to happen with the support of their institution. So it's, it's an incredible achievement, yeah. given the fact that this is not a, 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 a well-supported UN type of, you know, international body um, doing it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been coming across the Global Carbon Project's uh, work for, for many years, and um, it, it's almost become a, a, a touchstone point. And this year, of course, you're releasing it, uh, you always release the, the numbers around this time of the year, and it, it, it tends to coincide with, the, with the, the United Nations climate talks, which this year are taking place in Bonn in, in Germany. Um, but it's, it, um, and it's important, is it, that that uh, those policymakers are, are informed with with this with these kinds of numbers. Um, is that a, is that a primary concern that you know the, the policymakers have have good reliable numbers in their hands? Yes, yeah, so that that's why the GCP was established. I mean, we we we, we have a, a fundamental research agenda that 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 uh, kind of leads to to all these numbers so this is really the fundamental w- workings of of the carbon cycle and everything that we do to it but really we're established to really bring this to the level where decisions are being made uh, both nationally and internationally you know through this uh, the, the UN convention and of course all the technical bodies and the conference of the party meetings uh, that we have. And just kind of going back to what the GCP is, the fact that we're completely from bottom up and we're strictly scientifically driven, that gives us full independence. So, you know, we have no agenda other than showing, you know, the state of the, the carbon budget, the state of the affairs in terms of the data and the state of the art modeling, what is showing us about what we're doing to sure. the to the, the accumulation of CO two, and and you're giving us the numbers, and I'm glad you mentioned that word that accumulation because this is some, something that I I, um, I I think is is often lost on people because we we hear about a an, an uh, annually emissions have gone up a little bit, they've gone down a little bit, they've decoupled a little bit, China's doing a bit more, uh, Europe's doing a bit less. Or, or whatever it might be, um, but the the that amount of of CO two um, that's being released into the atmosphere through uh, through industry and fossil fuel use, as you say, about thirty seven billion tons probably this year. Um, it's not like next year if it did happen to drop down that 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 we see that impact in the atmosphere because that CO two it hangs around for a long time in the system, doesn't it? Yes, and and that's why we 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 emphasize so much CO two. We work on the the other greenhouse gases, methane, nitrous oxides, but really CO two is the one that it, you know it it kind of is responsible for the biggest fraction of the warming, but also is the one that hangs us there at, at, at a at a kind of declining rate for hundreds and thousands of years into the atmosphere. So in a way, what we're doing to the atmosphere, it is an, an irreversible process at the scale of humans. That's why it's so important that we just get it right. There's no way 
you know, of going back. And of course, we can always try to develop new technologies to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But that's a little uh, geoengineering that we don't have full handle on. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. Thanks to Pep Canadel from the Global Carbon Project. So if emissions are on the up again, then what's going on with climate policies around the world to, to slow them down? And what about the Trump factor? I asked Professor Frank Yotzal. He's a, a climate policy expert at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University in Canberra. How does he feel about these new numbers? Oh, look, it's not unexpected, but it is, of course, disappointing if indeed it turns out that 2017 was a year where global greenhouse gas emissions increased again. Um, so that, that three-year uh, plateau or hiatus in, in emissions growth um, was something very positive uh, and, and something, you know, if that had continued, uh, would have put the world uh, well onto the path of a, of a two-degree outcome. Um, yeah. And I guess the, you know, I mean, the assumptions are that really overall we are still on an increasing emissions trajectory. And if the Global Carbon Project's estimations turn out to be right, then uh, then it will be confirmation that indeed that three-year pause in emissions growth uh, was, was a temporary thing. Yeah, those... Um those, those data sets like the Global Carbon Projects, and it's not the only one that counts what our emissions are, but they are, they are very noisy, but they do give us kind of an idea of, of where we're heading to. And according to the, the Global Carbon Projects numbers, uh, again, the, the growth that they're seeing uh, is in places like China and in, and in India. Um, how are those countries responding uh, Policy-wise, to, to to what's going in in their countries, they have a, they have a lot of priorities to balance. What what how are they responding um, with, with climate policy? Well, China first. We have seen a very strong emphasis by the uh, the central government in China on environmental issues, um, and that has triggered a multitude of policy efforts and directed investment into cleaner energy. Now, the the greatest proximate cause of that is probably not climate change, but uh, mm. air, which is, you know, I mean, air pollution is a really big issue in China. Um, but of course, uh, you know, all of these things aligned. Another thing that's aligned is China's um, quest to become a leader in energy technologies of the future. So tremendous um, opportunity for industrial development and, and China is clearly intent on taking that and becoming one of the world leaders in, in the provision of, of next generation energy technologies and transport technologies, electric vehicles, all of that. And so we've seen a really big improvement um, in China um, in terms of the carbon intensity of China's growth. So go back just a decade, then a one percentage increase in China's GDP pretty much meant a one percentage increase in carbon dioxide emissions. Oh. Uh, today, that ratio is much, much lower. Yes. Um, now, 
we look at we 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 look at where the world's emissions come from and and uh, the United States until maybe four or five years ago was always the biggest emitter now now we see it's China and it and and some some people make a it's a I guess it's a political argument that from smaller countries uh, such as Australia for example that um, why should we be making any efforts when uh, when when China can easily snuff out what Australia does it's been a popular argument I've read it all the time and politicians some politicians push that push that kind of argument but what um uh, the uh, australia's emissions um uh, are small but i guess if everybody took that point of view then uh then we would be in a we would be in a poor situation well exactly graham i mean you know um <laughs> you can split one large country into very many uh, smaller units for example if you chose to consider china not as a national entity but as so many provinces and if you chose to um, split the united states of america into its constituent states then you'd end up with very small units that individually uh, contribute very very little to global emissions as well so um, you know, ignoring smaller countries just because of their overall size is a nonsense. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that, that carries right through uh, to, to the policy efforts that, that any jurisdiction, whatever, whatever size, um, would, would need to undertake. Of course, you know, I mean, the, the one fundamental difference between a large country and a small country is that um, by virtue of being able to aggregate a larger share of the global total, mm. um, a government such as China's um, can actually make a material difference by itself on the climate outcomes that it itself as a country will experience in the future. Yeah. Right? So it doesn't suffer as much from the coordination problem and the disincentive, the free riding incentive is not as large as for a small country. But if we ask what needs to happen, what should happen, um, then, uh, you know, size of a country really doesn't enter the equation at all. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether the, uh, the, whether the Australian tax office would, would, would take my argument in the same way because my... my the amount of tax that I pay is really a tiny amount compared to the the, the entire revenue of Australia. I'm sure they wouldn't miss it. Um, but anyway, um, so just just dwelling on Australia for a little while, because Frank, I know you do look at the trajectories for for emissions for Australia. Um, uh, you, you're based at the Australian National University. The, how, how are we looking as a as a as a nation going forward? Well, look, um, you know, one thing we can look at is, is recent history of national greenhouse gas emissions. And so what we've seen is, is a very gradual increase in national emissions as reported by government um, since 2013. Um, not, not a huge growth, but nevertheless a growth. And of course, what needs to happen um, in particular for, for a country where per capita emissions are high and where opportunities to cut emissions are large, mm. um, is we need, we need to see significant annual uh, reductions, even just to meet the Paris target, which is a 26 to 28 percent emission reductions at 2030 relative to a base year of 2005, right? Yeah. So, we're significant way away from that in Australia. Um, from current levels, that is 2016 levels, we'd need to cut by another 20, 18 to 20% just to meet that target. Mm. Okay. Uh, 
yeah, that's yeah. It, and, that, and that's uh, that's that's a really significant task. And if like every year that emissions are flatlining or growing a bit, that task is of course growing. Sure, and um, it, it doesn't take a genius to work out that you know the, the emissions, whether they're in China or, or or India, as as the Global Carbon Project report points out, and as have many others, it is you know these emissions are mainly coming from the the, the burning of, produ- of 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 fossil fuels and. Um, and those fossil fuels need to be produced, and where they're burned is, you know, the, the atmosphere doesn't really care. Um, Australia, as a major producer um, of fossil fuels, you know, the the, uh, the, the second largest or largest uh, exporter of coal, um, with ambitions to be the biggest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Um, uh, the as you said earlier, it depends which way you want to split your jurisdiction. You can also do the same thing with how you want to split the the uh, uh, the responsibility for those emissions. Australia is responsible for a small amount of emissions burned locally, but a much larger amount if you were to count Australia's production. Um, it, it are those arguments when when. When policymakers are discussing um, who should do what and when, uh, do those arguments come into play if Australia was to go into an international talks and a smaller country says, well, yeah, your emissions might be small, but you produce a whole load of coal and, and gas? Do, do, do those arguments um, get, uh, get policy uh, process stuck? Yeah, look, I mean, the the conversation internationally around climate change policy is arranged around the use of fossil fuels, right? So who burns it, uh, how much of it, and what are the opportunities for them um, to, to cut it? And so um, those those discussions about who produces how much of the fuel and, and exports it for other people to use is really not um, the the mainstay of the conversation and you know i mean in many respects with with good reason um because you know it's ultimately about the demand for for fossil fuels uh, that drives the issue and and someone will supply it however um it is of course true that um yeah, in principle, um, the large suppliers of fossil fuels, be you know Australia, Indonesia, a few other countries in coal, uh, Saudi Arabia, and a number of other countries in oil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, those large producers and exporters, uh, in, in principle, have an avenue to help um, the importers of fossil fuels um, to uh, to cut their demand for mm. for fuels right and so if you you speaking in concrete terms you know that's what OPEC did in the 1970s right so they established a a cartel for the supply of oil um, jacked up the prices and in the process helped the rest of the world to become much more energy efficient in the use of oil right Mm. in in petrol Um, and that was a good thing ultimately for the climate um, and you could argue it was a good thing economically for the West as well because it forced greater energy efficiency and savings down the track. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole strand of thinking that's called, you know, supply-side climate policy um, where, where researchers evaluate uh, the options for such a thing, including, for example, um, a harmonized supply action or supply response on, on coal. Mm. It's it's really not something that's in the mainstream of the policy debate. Yeah. So when we look around, Frank, at, um, at, at policies around the world, what's is anything working right now? Um, there's been major 
uh, criticisms of Europe's emissions trading scheme. For example, we have um, we have some policy uncertainty. I think it's a nice way of calling it in in the US, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but when you when you when you have a look around, Frank, what what do you see as 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 working? Is is anywhere working? Oh, lots of things are working in many, many places and are working beautifully um, and really uh, head and shoulder above everything else. Uh, we have to say uh, the the improvements in clean energy technologies have been working tremendously well. Okay, And so um, the, the reductions in, in costs of renewable energy in particular, uh, the rate of progress in, in grid integration of renewables, rate of progress with electric vehicles, uh, smart grids, all of these things are really well ahead of schedule. And, uh, you know, if, if 10 years ago, no, I mean, I was involved in, in research and projection exercises, say, a decade ago, where we mm. put up relatively, you know, ambitious scenarios, uh, for example, for Australia's emissions reductions, right, uh, and the assumptions that went into any of these analyses. Uh, in the most optimistic uh, assumptions, we're way more pessimistic than what we actually see turning out. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, for example, in many parts of the world, just talking about Australia here, um, if you were to invest into a new power generation plant now, you would not build a coal plant just simply because it's not economic anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The alternatives are cheaper and are and and still are becoming cheaper, right? And so, that's working. I mean, just just look at the global carbon project statistics, and the um, uh, the projections for 2017 emissions of India. What do we got there? Two percent growth, right? In an economy mm. um, where where GDP growth uh, is projected to be uh, nearly seven percent for 2017, right? So that's a that's an enormous rate of decarbonisation of the Indian economy, um, and all all that is happening while the country, of course, increases electrification. Um, and, and that electrification is done very efficiently and increasingly based on renewables. So all of that is working. Yeah. So is, is it policy that supports renewables growth and cleaner and cleaner energy? Are, are those the policies that are really starting to sort of put the rubber on the on the road? Yeah, so it's it's a mix, right? It's a, it's a positive feedback mechanism between policy support Um and uh, and tech development and lower lower costs for cleaner energy, um, which then kind of ultimately alleviates the need for policy support. Right. So yeah. um, we've got very cheap solar panel manufacturing these days. Right. That would not be the case if it hadn't been um, for very large scale government programs in Germany, Japan, and a few other countries one two decades earlier. Right. So we in, in some ways we're seeing the fruits of success of, of early investment. You made the point about policy uncertainty. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's certainly it's 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 a mess with regard to climate change policies in many countries, um, Australia, United States included. Uh, the EU emissions trading scheme uh, is, is ambling at very low prices. Now, why are the prices so low? Well, because it's actually... Um, you know, everything else is keeping emissions down to the EU emissions uh, trading scheme targets. And so there's not much left to do for the emissions trading scheme, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can, mob, you can bemoan the low prices in the emissions trading scheme or you can say, well, 
turns out this was actually a lot easier to achieve than you thought huh. and really governments uh, should be should be tightening the screws and go for higher ambition so what about the what about the trump presidency there was a, a there's a lot of concern and a, um, I, I i feel having read uh, a lot of the output and written some stories myself about it uh, sometimes it feels as though there's an attempt to um, to put a positive spin on, on Trump's uh, presidency uh, in that all these smaller jurisdictions uh, have, have really said, well, you know, we, we're just going to get on with this anyway. There's that, even this idea that it's, it's actually Trump's pulling out of the global uh, Paris climate deal and his promotion of fossil fuels domestically has, has kind of galvanized everybody else. And indeed now I think uh, uh, the USA stand alone in the only the only country not to support uh, the Paris deal. Uh, Syria and Nicaragua recently said they were going to sign it, which leaves which leaves the states on their own. Um, but do, do you think there's a, a there's a material impact to, to Trump's presidency and his his real desire to, pr to promote fossil fuels and, and really disregard climate change as a risk? Yeah, so um, what we're seeing is that there's a significant impact within the United States, right, where the Trump administration has direct control over regulatory and legislative, or well, mostly regulatory levers. Um, and so you'd expect the, uh, the transition towards a cleaner energy system in the United States to be significantly delayed um, on account of uh, of what's happening there at the moment. Um, that said, though, you know, even within the US, um, you know, no government can can just completely stop the clock um, and and undo the uh, the change in technologies, right? Mm. So. Um, you might delay the, uh, the 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 swap from the switch from coal-fired power stations to gas and renewables, but you're not going to stop it, right? Um, and, and so you know, but there's there's no way for for government to to halt that kind of progress. Um, internationally, look, I mean, you said it just then. You know, we we have not at all seen a domino effect in terms of uh, countries turning their back on the Paris Agreement, not at all, right? And so, mm. in some senses, you know, the argument that um, uh, you know this this might reinforce the resolve of some others is true, okay? Mm. Um, but I think it's equally, you know, it's it's correct not to sugarcoat it, right? And so certainly what is true, if you have a major player like the US, very explicitly coming out against something like the Paris Agreement, that has a ripple effect and that gives backing to any government or any lobby group, whoever, um, who is intent on going more slowly, right? So you can always point to the US and say, well, they're going more slowly, we should as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, you see that happening in, in different countries at different points in time. And so, uh, yeah, so overall, there's certainly a, a cooling effect on, on global climate policies emanating from, from Trump. Thanks, Frank. It's, it, it's certainly, I think the Trump presidency has certainly had an impact on um, on the, the nature of the conversation about climate change. And in particular, it, as far as the, the, the science goes, uh, the way that Trump has um, uh, has introduced a, a whole bunch of climate science denialists into his into his administration um, uh, it, it certainly feels like 
uh, it's galvanised one set of people who, who, who seem to uh, seem to l- l- live on the internet uh, and who say, you know, climate change is a hoax. Uh, it, it's it's all overblown. It's a globalist plot. Blah blah blah. Uh, but that. Trump's ascendancy to the presidency, it, if it's done one thing, I feel as though it's it's sort of uh, reinforced some of those, the ideas of those groups. I know that's not something that you look at, but is that something that you've noticed? Well, certainly. I mean, the, the climate change denialist rhetoric um, is being boosted by that. But, you know, the question you've got to ask is, does does that have uh, effects in the real world, right? And, and so the real world is really in this space largely defined by the investment decisions that companies take, right? Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, a rise in climate change denialist rhetoric really, uh, you know, from my vantage point, really has, has no impact on the decisions that boardrooms make and the decisions that banks make in supporting or not supporting uh, clean or, uh, or emissions-intensive infrastructure investment, energy investment, right? I mean, the, the conversation is more, more mature, um, than that, really, and so the the computation that that large investors make um, is about the likelihood of different policy settings getting in place or prevailing. Um, and I think in that regard, we're we're quite clearly seeing, you know, uh, a strengthening of of fossil fuel interests uh, within within the U.S. I mean, Trump is very very open and aggressive about that. Mm. And we see that reflected in in what actually happens in terms of you know mining expansion and a more favorable environment for investment in large fossil fuel projects and so on and so forth. you know but um, a lot of that infrastructure is very long lived, right? Uh, and investors are very clear that you know whatever they're going to build will still be there and will still make to need need to make an economic return long after Trump is gone. Right? yeah. So, and and that uh, that tempers the effect uh, of of any kind of um, short term, relatively uh, radical approach that that any government might take. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. So, emissions trajectories, policy responses, GDP, carbon intensity, emissions intensity decoupling. That's really the sort of gloopy language of climate policy and energy. It's not that sexy, is it? But all this stuff is fundamental to our futures. I mean, you know that farmers who have their crops ravaged by extreme drought or island nations that get swamped by sea level rise, uh, they don't think it's that sexy either. But you can bet that they want the world to get that sort of stuff sorted out pretty sharpish. As the Global Carbon Project's report says, nothing short of deep and rapid decarbonisation will keep the Earth from surpassing the 1.5 degrees C warming threshold. That's all really easy to say, not that easy to do, clearly. The Global Carbon Project, by the way, has got a cool website. It's called the Global Carbon Atlas, and you can go on there. You can go and play around with all the sorts of data about greenhouse gas emissions historically. Uh, you'll find it at globalcarbonatlas.org. Go and have a go and have a play around. Thanks for listening to another episode of Positive Feedback, uh, produced for free by me, Graham Redfern. Uh, stay tuned really soon for a plan to keep this podcast going. 
But for now, and this is really important, please share the podcast around, review it and rate it and do all that stuff uh, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. Um, You can find positive feedback on iTunes, on Stitcher, TuneIn and at soundcloud.com forward slash positive feedback podcast or on the Facebook page, facebook.com positive feedback podcast. Thanks until the next time.